Hey, welcome to the Virtually Speaking Podcast. My name is Pete Fletcher, and joining me as usual is my good friend, Mr. John Nicholson. John, welcome back from Vegas, my friend. No, it's it's good to be back, and um, it's time to, you know, we've shipped all this launch content. There's a lot of great blogs, but um, it's time to actually upgrade my lab, and, you know, um, I need to trying to test the new vSAN features and for that i also need to you know upgrade vSER because it's the same thing you know it's the same <laughs> upgrade path so um but I, I need to figure out how to what the order is and what the process is and make sure it'll be simple so time to go figure that out yeah i agree and uh yeah as we said explorer was last week there were so many announcements uh so obviously eight update two for both vSphere and vSAN and we did do a a deep dive with pete keeler on vSAN so if you haven't heard that yet by all means link below take a look um uh, but now uh, it's time to talk about the mothership which is vSphere and uh we've got some experts on the call to give us all the announcements starting with our good friend and partner in crime mr ken wernerberg how you doing sir I've rarely been this good in my life ever. Thank you for asking. <laughs> you know, for those that are only listening to this podcast, I recommend you watch the video because Ken Wernerberg, you look great, man. You look amazing. Your camera, I don't know what you're doing over there, but you're really looking like, I don't know. It's amazing. Great color. Well, now I'm blushing. So. This is no longer a technical <laughs> podcast. This is just an AV production podcast. It should uh, be. Thank you, for, thank you for getting on this ride, everyone. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Ken, uh, we'll put it in the show notes of the podcast. L- let everybody know which camera you're using, which lights, and all that stuff. But for today, we're going to talk. We're going to talk about vSphere. <laughs> uh, and if we're going to talk about the details of vSphere, we might as well bring on one of the really smart guys, our good friend, formerly from Ireland, now currently living in Canada. Phelan, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, thank you. I don't have as fancy a setup as Ken. I'm in a retrofitted garden shed. Um, so thankfully, <laughs> the weather's not very hot today. When we tried to do this earlier in the week, I was sitting here sweating and I was glad that we had to postpone because <laughs> it wasn't comfortable. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, no, I'm glad that we made time to do this. I know there's a lot of great updates. I was obviously reading about those while we were at Explore and I was like, oh, we definitely got to get Phelan on and talk about some of these. Uh, I want to start with one of the big ones I saw, which was the whole you know, distributed uh, services engine. I think that that whole story is super interesting and I'd love for you to... Uh, Share the details on it. Sure, that. yeah. So we we first launched uh, the distributed service engine or vSphere on DPUs um, back with vSphere 8 GA. And we've just made incremental improvements through update one and now update two. We're adding additional support for uh, more vendors. So things like Lenovo, Fujitsu, they're on board now with their certified systems, various DPU models from uh, NVIDIA and AMD Passando. So we're expanding that ecosystem all the time, and there's going to be additional vendors and additional, you know, hardware configurations come on board as well in the future. It's kind of something we we really blasted out at the start of vSphere 8's uh, release, you know, last year. But you know, we want to make sure that you know it's it's not forgotten. We're continuously looking at improving and expanding that ecosystem and pr- improving all that that great technology with the DPUs. So the the question I have, for, just real quick here, for people who are sitting at home and saying, okay, DPU, smart NIC, whatever you want to call it, this thing that has all this co-processing, what are the use cases to where, like, if I'm buying a new server, I need to spec that? At what point is it just kind of a no-brainer that I need to put that on the bill of materials? 
Well, um, I guess it depends on on what sort of workloads you're you're going to be running. Um, it's it's tending to lean a little bit towards the whole AIML uh, workloads as well. GPUs and DPUs are starting to become a little bit more coupled together in terms of the workloads are going to accelerate on the GPU, and they're also going to leverage the DPUs as well for any of that network network traffic because we all flowed the the network services, the NSX services to those GPUs for better performance and we're freeing up some of those CPU cycles to get back to those workloads. Yeah, I think if you look at the history of the uh, of the program in general, back when we introduced that as Project Monterey, you'll see that really it, it stems out of this space where we're talking about networks first and foremost. So they are smart NICs initially, and then we realized that, hey, this, uh, this uh, smart NIC has this ARM processor on there that we can do things with. And of course, with the network, being proximal to that car uh, to that uh, CPU, it just makes the most sense to start there. So it's about a couple of things. It's about performance and obviously maximizing the throughput, but it's also about reducing the footprint of the the ESXi server itself. So taking some of those services and offloading them. And if you think about that, so John, today, yeah, the the one that makes sense is what Phelan was talking about, which is really about offloading NSX networking. But really that framework is wide open in terms of the types of services we could offload, the types of accelerations that we could put on that onto this dedicated ARM chip. So really it's a framework that we're delivering in multiple stages and putting different workload types onto it. So, you know, stay on top of that and see, you know, if something pops up on, on that uh, roadmap where we say, hey, now we can do this with these ARM processors on the smart NICs, on the DPUs, um, then it's really up to your individual workload type. So stay with us on that framework and you'll see increasing uh, offloads taking place on the DPUs. Okay, so high throughput shops that are looking at, you know, offloading NSX for today, um, question mark for tomorrow, watch this space. So no, well, yeah, exactly. And if you're if you're looking at buying hardware, if you're thinking about, you know, I'm refreshing hardware, you can buy DPU ready systems today from the various vendors, they've got them pre installed. Um, there are some vendors that are able to retrofit DPUs into your existing hardware, or you'll be able to buy hardware that is DPU ready doesn't come with the DPU yet, but it'll be very easy to just slot it in and, and press go. Because it is a bit bigger, like it's a bigger car that uses a bit more power than a standard, just, you know, uh, ancient X710 or something. So you've got to make sure you've got, you know, thermal overhead, power overhead in the host. So um, yeah. don't just assume you can replace, you know, your little PCI one card with one of these. Exactly. Yeah. Do you think that this will be the the eventually like not not that you have to commit to this, but just your thoughts? Like, do you think that this is the way moving forward where the, everything is just offloaded and. Uh, and and put on uh, hardware as opposed to you know built into the software and managed on site in, inside of your host. It's it's hard to know. I think we're going to start with offloading some kind of services of ESXi and vSphere onto the DPUs, but we'll probably keep the the base ESXi function on that x86 CPU. I mean, if, if you, you look at about the increasing use cases, sorry, John, if you think about some of these use cases down the road, I think it comes back to what Phelan was talking about with the convergence of DPUs and GPUs. If you think about distributing uh, GPU workload to frame buffer across the wire, you need to get that data to it, you need to get it processed, and you need to get it out of that box as quickly as you can. And having all of this sitting on the same uh, bus, as it were, basically, uh, can help streamline some of that as well. So when you start talking about scale, it becomes a different story. And some of that, you know, converge 800 gigabit per second uh, you know, uh, throughput starts to become a real benefit to it at that point too. So 
it really, you know, it, the, this hardware is becoming a very, very important part of the server because it does give you an extra location for doing both uh, offloads, but also having that proximity to the to the GPU and some of these converged cards and things that we're seeing. Absolutely, when we start looking at massive uh, uh, data sets that that need access to GPUs, that's going to become a use case for that as well. So it's all so it's all pretty dynamic right now. You, you basically, the GPU potentially have like an RDMA or a bypass, like a direct access to the network. So it, it doesn't have to go through memory. Um, you know, thinking to Pete, your question there, I guess, looking at history of, you know, will the future be more offloads or cards on this? I think we all remember sound cards being a thing and they were cool. And then <laughs> yeah. that merged onto the CPU or the northbound chip. But inversely, I also remember that the northbound chip often used to handle a lot of the NIC offload, um, which in servers, discrete NICs are, have, we're going more in that direction, frankly, with DPUs. So I guess it's, it's interesting with offloads. We've seen some stuff like encryption coprocessors where, yeah, Intel's platinum CPUs can crunch and crypto pretty well. But on the other hand, you know, the closer you get to the network, um, there's been more separation. So that's, it, I, I ended up on a bus one time with a guy whose job was at VMware to guess which offload, uh, and this was like four or five years ago, which of these was going to be the path. And I was like, oh, which one it is? He's like, oh, no one knows. Like, <laughs> Well, if you think about, I mean, speaking of ancient history with Sound Blaster 16s and things like that, uh, I, I always think about the coprocessor on the 286s. I remember I was like, oh, man, I, I got to get a 286 with a coprocessor. That's going to that's gonna speed everything up. But unless you're actually doing the math instructions that are going to be offloaded to that 286, copro is not going to yeah. do anything for you. It's just a... a, a Wasn't there a math things. bug in that 286 to where they, like, there, there was, like, some weird number that didn't crunch correctly? But, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> All right, well, let's delete that part. Yeah, this, let's, is, this let's, is not a history well, lesson. <laughs> let's, let's not get into uh, the history of offloads and DPUs. What else is new with AU2? What, how, how much easier is it just to upgrade? That's another thing. Like, how, you know, what's my upgrade path looking like? Yeah, John, you mentioned you're going to be doing an upgrade, um, you know, to AU2, hopefully. And having come from a support background, you know, I've worked in support for Vs for four or five and the early six days, I know upgrading isn't always just press the button, get a cup of coffee, come back, and it's done. What? <laughs> things break. Things, really? things fail. <laughs> but we've made a huge number of improvements, especially in these for 8 Update 2 now, around all that maintenance area. And to me, they're some of the more exciting things. They're not the coolest things, but from just from my background in VMware, I think they're they're pretty cool. So there's a couple of small things. Like, you know, when you're doing a, a vCenter upgrade, you know, and John, you'll do this, you'll get the checkbox to say, yes, I've taken a backup, but we know you didn't take the backup. You lie um, <laughs> and you continue anyway. And then the upgrade fails and, you know, you're you're out of luck. So what we're actually doing now, we're, we're giving you a get out of jail free card where we'll take a, an LVM level snapshot. So at the Photon Linux level, we'll take an OS level snapshot before any upgrade work or, or patching work takes place. So in the event that the patching might fail, you didn't take your backup, you didn't take your snapshot or whatever, you now do have a, a rollback mechanism that we're, we're we're giving to you. But it's not a it's not a replacement for backups. Please do take your backups, file-based backups, image level backups, whatever you're doing, please do take them, take them frequently. Um, but this is a nice, nice get out of jail free card. Um, for those that tick the box, uh, but lie about it. 
are these accessible or are they just they you they're used in the event that they need to be but they're not like somebody can be like oh i bet they're there i can manage that outside of this process no yeah okay. you, you can't manage it it's it's all kind of automated once you do the patching event the first thing that the system will do will kick off an lvm snapshot if the patching task succeeds that lvm snapshot will get automatically wiped away um, so it's just there as that get out of jail free card if your patching fails. You know, there are features that um, are driven by customers. There's features that are driven by field requests. There's features that are driven by engineering or product managers. And then there are features uh, that I can smell a, mile, a million miles away that were driven by the support organization. Um, and this this <laughs> is clearly the latter, I'm going to guess. Yeah, I, I'd have to imagine because, you know, even though we do have the native file-based backup tool now, before those back in the beast for four or five days, the amount of customers I worked with, you know, that didn't take a backup, you know, you'll ask them, you know, did you take your backup? And they'll sheepishly kind of skirt around the question, you know, maybe go, yes. oh, my next drops. <laughs> well, and one of the challenges <laughs> yeah. that I think people sometimes have kind of missed um, was that people would back up the virtual machine using VADP, using their regular backup process, which is fine if it's a standalone vCenter. But when you started getting into distributed PSCs or enterprise link mode and things like that, you now have a distributed database that's doing rollback. And like it, it's kind of like doing a, uh, a you know domain controllers back before they became aware of EM snaps. You've got the back in time problem. And so um, restoring those backups is was always dicey, particularly with linked mode. Um, so that's why, by the way, even if you are using Commvault or Veeam or whatever to your backup, please go configure the file backups. Uh, it is important and it gives you an extra layer and it's glad to hear we have a third layer here of defense for this. Um, exactly. Um, the other, the other cool thing that this is bringing as well in 8U2 is all around distributed switches. And again, that story of backup, you know, we've all been at that stage probably where we've restored from backup and, you know, our backup could have been a week or a month old or whatever. So now our distributed switch is all out of whack and it, it can be a pain to, to get it back into sync, to get all those port groups back that you created after oh, yeah. the back was taken and all that you know and it can be it can be a huge mess we're actually removing that entire problem in vSphere update 2 because we we have a the the most up-to-date copy of the dvs uh, or the vds on the esx host themselves so now when vcenter gets restored it queries its respective clusters and goes Okay, this is my VDS information. What do you have? Oh, yours is more up to date, and I'm going to consume that. And it removes all that manual resync, recreate, and you know, oh, yeah. it's 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 pretty it's pretty seamless. It's kind of hard to it's hard to appreciate unless you've ever been in that situation where you've had to manually rebuild distributed switches and stuff. Oh, you have to like rip one of the uplinks off, build a standard switch, attach the vCenter, like go through that whole process. Um, yeah, I've actually had an outstanding feature request for seven years to automate backing up the VDS. So I, I didn't actually know this was shipped, but that was like one of the three things I came into this company when I joined here eight years ago of like my request. So yay. Yeah, uh, I, 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 would, I wouldn't call it a backup. Sorry, Ken. I wouldn't call it a backup of the VDS. We're essentially reconciling the current state of the VDS that's living on the clusters. Yeah, oh, to living prevent on the out host. of sync issues uh, between versions. Got it. it exactly, well, that's still... Yeah. 
that covers the main reason for that. So that's fine. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you can back up the VDS uh, kind of ad hoc as well, but an, an automated one of those would be cool too. It's the same yeah. sort of thing that we were doing. And in fact, it uses the same mechanism, unless I'm mistaken, for host and cluster membership uh, previously with a distributed key value system. So yeah. rather than having everything uh, need to try to resynchronize, we maintain that as part of a distributed state with its uh, key store across all of the hosts. So that on, yeah, it, it, for cluster membership on, on rejoining, it's got its own state that it informs VC about rather than trying to inherit some perhaps out of date. Uh, yeah, exactly. We're, we're moving vCenter, we're moving the source of truth from being vCenter historically to being a little bit of more of what the cluster knows about it, because typically it's a, it's a better source of truth. Um, and we're trying to make vCenter more stateless. Mm. Not, well, and that, that I, was that was particularly why I wanted the backups in the VDS is when the when if your vCenter for some reason corrupted or someone deleted it or something silly happened, it was like great. Now none of my hosts know what's going on. You know they're kind of zombieing on on the VDS and moving mm -hmm. that to a distributed model that mirrors already what vSAN does with uh, some MDS, but that also mirrors like how DRS is now and HA have become a very I guess HA was always kind of a distributed service, but even DRS is now a distributed service. Um, and if you, you think about HA, it's one of the most bulletproof things VMware's ever built. Like it's just so reliable and it works. And the reason it works mm -hmm. is because it doesn't actually depend on vCenter outside of configuration. It's a very distributed system. There's a lot of resiliency in that design. Yeah, it's it, one of the reasons it, it yeah. works through failure. I wouldn't say that's one of the reasons it works, but yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It responds. <laughs> yeah. Is is it? And we don't need to dig too hole down this too deep down this hole. But is it like a like stretch cluster has like a tiebreaker situation where if one is available, then it's it there's a tiebreaker that says, oh, this is the most authoritative source based on uh, timestamp, and then makes that decision. So therefore, there's three people in the decision at all times. So how does it decide? Uh, you know, what is the, the more recent copy? Um, I'm not 100% sure if it actually checks which is more recent. I think it may assume that the cluster has the most recent ah. um, information. Okay. But I, I, I'd, need to, I'd, need to ask, um, I'd need to ask engineering on that. Completely uh, not needed information, just more curiosity. <laughs> yeah. no, my understanding was it was actually yeah. just a push from the ESXi hosts themselves yeah. for that configuration information. Ah. So it, it updates the vCenter from the ESXi hosts. Nice. My understanding on that. Nice. So upgrades, uh, there's a lot of different uh, you know parts can, uh, involved in upgrades. We have to upgrade our ESXi host. We have to upgrade vCenter. Uh, previously, previous versions, these were done separately. Everything is now inside of vSphere. Are there any updates in regards to that with uh, uh, update two? Well, the, the biggest thing we've done in update two is bring the, what we've called reduced downtime upgrade from uh, vSphere Plus or Cloud Connected offering um, to on-prem. <clears throat> and what this does is it you still upgrade vCenter, um, but you're reducing your overall downtime from what could be an hour plus when you're doing even a, you know, go from update one to update two down to less than five minutes of, of downtime. Um, now your work, your total end-to-end -end work, let's say as a sysadmin, might be relatively the same, but your downtime is significantly shortened here with this reduced downtime upgrade method. And you'll be able to use this to actually go from 8.0 or 8.0 U1 to 8.0 U2. It's not one of those features you have to get to 8.0 U2 first uh, and then yeah. can use for it on. You'll actually be able to use this to get to upgrade from any version of 8 
to uh, it or u2 and the way the reason this is different is it's a migration based uh, upgrade even if you're doing a minor patch or a, or an update you know 80u1 to 80u2 or in the future 80u2 to 80u2 a b c d or whatever you can opt to use this migration based approach which is very similar when we're doing a major upgrade from 7 to 8 for example because we still deploy a brand new vcenter vm we copy all the data across, but the, the big difference here is that we keep both online at the same time. The, the new vCenter, the 80U2 vCenter has a temporary IP address. They're both online at the same time. All the data gets copied over. And then at your leisure, you know, whenever you want to kick, kick the button, you press the switch over button, and then we shut down the services on the original, power them up on the other one, roughly three to five minutes downtime vCenters upgraded. So the end-to-end -end workload, you still have to deploy and configure a new appliance, but that's all guided for you. But that downtime piece is only three to five minutes, which is which is huge. You yeah, know, that's a big difference. Well, 10, 10x you, less downtime. Well, and what's nice with this is this fundamental design is this is one of those things when you do these, these stand-up two copies and then it chunks over, is if there's a failure in that process, you've got a clean fail back. You just power exactly. back on the old one because I remember we we did like a I think a major upgrade this way some years back and I remember like I had a problem it's like oh power that off power on the old one cool you roll back and this this helps a couple ways one this obviously as you mentioned shortens the time but this also de-risks the process significantly and mm -hmm. it makes it to where you should be able to make it more comfortable to do during the middle of the day um, which yeah. is like a long rant I have if we need to stop patching yeah. at three a.m. or whatever like let's do this at lunch like because it's a five minute blip over. No one yeah. will probably notice. And for those of you who are like, well, you know, if my vCenter's down for an hour, who cares? Well, there's people who, if you're running Horizon, if you're running VRA, if you're running any type of automation on top mm -hmm. of that, you've got VCD or some type of CMP, you're going to cause an outage for those people. And they'll actually complain yeah. and they'll be annoyed. So, yeah. And, um, you, and you, like you said, you don't, you can actually do the, 99% of the work during production hours because it's it's not disruptive to the running vCenter. You know, have it all staged, have it ready to go, ready to hit that switchover button, and then do that, you know, on Friday or Saturday when when you don't have that when you can take that outage. Oh, Friday so Friday is a read thing. only day for me. That's that's my religion. <laughs> so but no, it's but but even if you let's say they do say okay you got to make that change dur during you know eight to midnight or something you you eight o'clock yeah. you log in you hit go oh it's done and then you go back to eating dinner or go back to whatever it is you go back to the show versus actually having to sit there for the full hour and a half after hours so i mean maybe somebody's somebody's gonna get less paid less overtime but i think most people would rather <laughs> have their weekends Exactly. And so like th this, I think is going to be, it's going to be huge and it'll hopefully encourage customers to upgrade more frequently, you know, get onto that latest, latest build, um, just, just quicker rather than, you know, sitting on 80 or sitting on 80 U1 because they can't get the right time change or this change window to do an hour, hour plus upgrade of downtime. So hopefully this will, this will negate those challenges. Yeah, reducing the downtime, but also risk mitigation. I mean, there's there's no reason not to do this. It reduces you know every problem associated with upgrades across the board. And philosophically, one of the things I like about this is just the fact that we introduced it first through the VMware Cloud. And I think to me, this is that delivery mechanism that we've been talking about for ages, where we can reduce the number of variables yeah. for us to be able to to write new code and de 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 deliver things more quickly to the on-prem customers because we've kind of gone through and deployed it 
uh, through our cloud services first and kind of said, yeah, this is functional. It's going to be good for end users to run uh, on-prem. So I like that, you know, and deploy it on, on small blast radius of our VMware cloud initially, make sure it's 100% bulletproof and then cascade it out. So just from a design philosophy perspective, I like it. Yeah, it's been tested for sure. I like that. So uh, yeah, as we all know, the buzzword at VMware Explorer was artificial intelligence, AIML, AI absolutely. Yeah. So I was waiting for uh, John to sl slip in some snarky response, but yeah, it was definitely AI and ML uh, and uh, man, you know, VMware private AI foundation with NVIDIA took front stage. Uh, heck, every conversation John and I had, whether it was with a VMware uh, customer, employee, uh, everybody was talking about it. Customers talking about how they're going to be trying to take advantage of some form of um, AI in their future workloads and their their designs. Uh, maybe we can maybe break down some of the specific changes as it pertains to uh, to vSphere eight update two. Yeah, I mean vSphere supported GPUs for a long time now, um, but we're we're making them more like first-class citizens, you know, they used to be used to be able to do snapshots or vMotion or any of that sort of stuff. And we've gradually added those functionalities to GPU-enabled VMs. We support, you know, massive GPUs with the NVIDIA NVLink and NV Switch up to, is it eight of those 16. or 16 of those uh, all linked together? Just massive powerhouses of, of computation in one ESXi host. Um, 16 vGPUs for if you want to carve up those GPUs to, to your virtual machines, you can have different VG profile types across your virtual machines. So, you know, even before we announced the, the private AI um, foundation um, at VMworld, or sorry, VMware Explorer, yeah. um, GPUs were, you know, GPU workloads were, were running great on vSphere. And we're, we're really investing in that, in that workload space. Um, some of the things that we're doing in 80U2 is is around um, their mobility, uh, the mobility of those workloads, things like vMotion, and making sure that they have what we're calling kind of like a quality of service when it comes to vMotion. So the first thing is that DRS is now going to be smarter when it comes to placing GPU-enabled VMs. In the past, it didn't really see the GPU as an entity. It just looked at memory CPU. And it didn't really understand where or where should I not place a GPU-enabled VM. So now wow. DRS is, is far better at that. <clears throat> it can understand how many physical GPUs are on your respective hosts and make smarter placement decisions for your vGPU VMs coming in. For example, we used to have scenarios in the past where, let's say, you've got three ESXi hosts in your cluster, and each host has four GPUs physical GPUs. So you might create a couple of two GPU VMs. They get distributed across uh, all the three hosts, one on each host. You think, yeah, DRS is doing its job. It's balancing things evenly and fairly. However, now if we come in with a, a four GPU or a three GPU virtual machine, it's got nowhere to sit. We have the available physical GPUs, but they're there's not one host that can fit a, a four GPU VM. Yeah. So now DRS will actually move one of the smaller VMs to make space for the new larger VM coming in. And that's something DRS has never really done before. Move, move another workload to benefit um, an incoming or a new workload for placement. And it's also going to try and place those, those smaller VMs better so that, you know, if we did that scenario again on 80U2 initially, 
it, we would expect that we would fill up one host essentially with its GPUs first to leave all the other hosts empty to accommodate larger VMs. So there's um my colleague Justin actually has a has a more detailed blog on that for improving the VM placement. Um, it's up on core.vmware.com. Um, you can you can check that out for for more details. But essentially, it's it's just smarter DRS awareness when it comes to to GPU enabled VMs. DRS is a wild feature because you've got balancing based off of network load on host, memory, CPU, now proactive eviction to find a fancier tenant for that slot. Um, yeah. This is something that occasionally yeah. people are like, ah, you know, other companies can do DRS. I'm like, ah, I don't think so. Like, it's the, the amount of R&D that has poured into this feature over the years is mm. wild and affinity groups and all the other stuff. Um, but this is something particularly, you know, when, what's the minimum order on GPUs or whatever? If you get eight of them, that's like the equivalent of a Picasso painting or something. It's <laughs> anything you can do to more efficiently pack those. Um, that is that is a you know a giant money printing device. So that's cool to hear. Yeah, yeah. yeah if you get eight GPUs, you can then have your own uh, uh, AI generator create your own Picasso from that. There you go. <laughs> Actually, we're not talking to Ken. We're talking to a Gen AI robot because you know for, that that's just a T one hundred. You've seen through my uncanny valley, and uh, you can see the other side. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exciting. everything we're doing. We're doing everything to make these for the the best place and the most optimal place to run your your GPU workloads. You know, which yeah, sounds, think... sounds a bit salesy, salesy a marketing statement coming from me, but it 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 is true. That like like John said, there's a huge amount of investment into really making those GPU workloads run run as good as they can. Yeah. It, it, it's it's really it's quite important that you have these platform level innovations irrespective of what you put on above them i mean really it's about making that platform application not application aware we don't know what you know is it doing inference is it doing whatever type of ai workload it's doing but we have visibility into that infrastructure and even when we talk about some of the the uh, stun time estimates and things like that for vmotion of gpu enabled systems we're now saying that we want to be have the administrators aware of the type of workloads that are running and have the infrastructure very responsive to those things. And I think if you look at some of the announcements that we made at, at Explore, you know, the, things like reference architectures, well, so what, you know, okay, you've got an RA for running AIML. No, I mean, we've got specific application workload types for AI and ML purposes running on Cloud Foundation enabled by these innovations at that vSphere level. So 16 vGPUs, eight NVSwitch, uh, you know, GPU connections across hosts, things like that. That actually does feed into this higher level application performance and application uh, result. So when Phelan says that, yeah, we're we're making sure that vSphere is the best place to run these things, it, it's actually true. We're doing these these low level platform type innovations to make it seamless and easy for the VI admins to help their data scientists context their workloads in as quickly, easily, seamlessly, and using all the same management uh, models that they've had before with DRS and all the rest of those things. So, I mean. They're, they're, they're cool innovations that are, and one thing that was very interesting to me was at, at Explore again, asking our customers, you know, how many people are using these types of workloads? And we're all familiar with that. We start uh, some new technology and you show up at Explore, you're, you're all excited. You go, how many people oh, yeah. are using this? And how many hands usually go up? Like a two. Yeah. <laughs> but here it was over half the room when Phelan was asking, you know, how many people here are using the, uh, or, or exploring AIML for their uh, data science and their enterprise over half the room 
had their hands up. So it, it's clearly an area where this investment that we're making it is going to pay off for our customers. Yeah, for sure. I think the timing was right for VMware to uh, to lean into this area. I'm sure there was a little bit of I, I wouldn't say luck, but yeah, the timing was great. You know, for to you know, the, all the work that we've done with uh, supporting GPUs over over time, and now as the world is definitely you know outside of the world of VMware is exploding, AI is everywhere, uh, and uh, I love the idea that VMware is just you know right there you know with the private ai foundation with nvidia uh supporting all these features built into our core operating system i love it uh we've only got a few more minutes left phelan i know there's a lot of other issues going on other updates i'll give you the uh the last word here what is what is another update uh that we can chat about before we let you go yeah i i'd say because we're low on time i'll talk about some of the errors in our devops space or vSphere tanzu area so there's a couple of things there that are helping the deployment of vSphere tanzu and then the self-service kind of model the kind of bring your own image model that we've, we've been working towards so first on the configuration piece you'll now be able to just um, import a, an existing config when you're enabling uh, workload management or enabling a supervisor cluster I don't know if you've done many of those, but it's it's quite tedious. There's a lot of things you need to answer. And if you get one wrong, you need to go back up and, and fix it. <clears throat> You'll now be able to export a, a known good configuration and re-import it to create a brand new supervisor cluster very quickly without having to fill in all the answers again, change just what you, change just what you need to, and very easily deploy additional supervisor clusters or even clone supervisor clusters. So really, really powerful, will hopefully dramatically speed up uh, the, some adoption of those, of those clusters because they can take a while to, to get right sometimes. In the VM service era, the dev, the bring your own image, we've kind of completed a lot of what we set out to do when we first announced vSphere Tanzu in vSphere 7. We now have a proper bring your own image model. You can now bring Linux, you can bring Windows VMs now and customize them, deploy them to your namespaces. The DevOps users don't have to log into vSphere. Nice. Uh, they are using their kubectl commands. You know, they have their own little bubble of resources within their own permission boundary, and they'll be able to deploy anything from a, from a content library now, TKG instances to run container workloads, but Linux VMs, Windows VMs, and they now be able to actually save the, all that back to a content library as well. And it's essentially a self-service image registry for them. Um, in the past, the admin only gave, could only give read-only access to the developers but now they can give read-write, share that read-write amongst multiple namespaces or have your own. So it's very, very flexible, but very, very powerful. And really kind of, it, it really does complete a lot of what we set out to do in the bring your own image model in that DevOps space. Yeah, for sure. That's the whole goal, right? Is to empower your your, your DevOps teams. I mean, if they're only uh, given access to read, that's that's not the full story. So giving them the ability yeah. to actually get the work done without having to communicate with a with a, a vSphere admin, I think is a is definitely the original goal. I'm glad to see that we're closer. I think well, the I, other I like the bring really... your own image and the other just small little details. Like it sounds not that important, but there's people who we have you know they standardize on Ubuntu or SUS or Rail or whatever. Um, it's handy. Yeah, and, and that VM service aspect of this as well is highly important. I think a lot of people aren't aware that you know what we're doing with vSphere Tanzu and some of these other uh, components here, it's not just about containers. It's about bringing that management model to the VMs as well. So being able to define yeah. your VMs and then manage them 
through a, a Kubernetes type of an interface and our API and all the rest of these components is very, very powerful as well. So you can consolidate your management of VMs in the same way that you would manage your, your containers and your, your, your supervisor services all provide you this one centralized uh, automation style for management, which is pretty powerful. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people sometimes maybe misconstrue that vSphere tends it was only for Kubernetes. It's only for containerized workloads, yeah. and it, and it's not. You could you could stand this up and then have your developers only working on traditional VMs. They may never touch a container in their lives, but they can still build their apps and deliver their apps using using the VM service. Yeah, Kube Cuddle for VMs. It's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Uh, everybody needs a Kube Cuddle once in a while. Um, <laughs> That is awesome. Yeah, so I know there's a lot of information uh, that came out this uh, this past week at Explore. Uh, lots of blogs. I know core.vmware.com is the the main place to go for for most information pertaining to vSAN and vSphere. Uh, you mentioned the the demo with Justin. I'm going to be sure to leave that in the show notes. Uh, anything else that we can? Uh, that, any other resources we can share with our audience before we take off? I think that's about it. Everything on core.vmware.com can link links out to anything that we've got on YouTube um, or any other of our kind of our sister channels there on the the tech zone. So I think that's probably your your best uh, one stop shop. Okay, beautiful. Well, Phelan, Ken, thank you so much for giving us the uh, the update here, and uh, we look forward to getting you guys back again. Uh, and until then, man, enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.